This is a passage that uh, kind of hanging it under the title of seven, Jesus' seven woes to the Pharisees. Jesus pronounces seven woe judgments. We're going to be looking at a few of these this morning, verses 13 through 15, but all the way down to, uh, to even... 22, so we kind of have two sections we're going to look at. I got to both sections last hour, so we'll get to both sections this hour. If, you, if you're a fan of baseball or played baseball, you may have heard the phrase, I call them like I see them. That's how I have them in the notes, E-M, you know, I call them like I see them. And that's, those are the words of a umpire who's standing by what he called in terms of a strike or whatever. A good umpire is someone who is left nondescript, somebody who you really didn't pay attention to at all in the game because functionally everything was within what you were agreeing with, I guess. If you're an umpire that's fair, usually, though, you're going to be unpopular because you're upsetting somebody with how you're, how you're calling the game. Controversial call would be something that somebody would disagree with and it creates all kinds of problems. It's a little bit of an analogy to the world we're living in and the world like a nine-inning game. I don't know where we are in the inning stretch, but things are heating up more and more as things come to the conclusion of the story where Christ will return. He'll make everything right, but in the meantime, we are the umpires, God's umpires out here, calling it like we see it, calling them as we see them. And speaking the truth is not always an easy thing to do in an arena like this. You'll have friendships that will be maybe tension-filled or perhaps would break. You'll have relationships that will be hard to navigate as you speak the truth. We're always called to speak the truth in love. Jesus spoke the truth in love. He spoke the truth straightforwardly. But as the world shakes up and as sin becomes more apparent... Sometimes we have to say things that appear to be very harsh and strong or can be cast as hate speech, yet for love's sake, we have to call people out. We, we're calling people to compel them into the kingdom, but sometimes we're calling things out for the glory of God where God actually is hardening the heart as we speak the truth, and that's God's doing. Jesus spoke very, very strong words, and perhaps this is the strongest language that he uses in all of his teaching, at least for what we have recorded in Scripture. Here in the Passion Week, right before he's going to be arrested, he's confronting the Pharisees and scribes, and he moves from dialogue to monologue, as we've talked about. Now he's just preaching, and he's preaching judgment. He's preaching woes. A woe judgment is a word of both comfort and condemnation. Comfort in the sense of it, you're actually trying to keep people from sinning. You're saying, whoa, whoa, like, whoa, don't go there. That's how this can be translated. But then also it's woe upon you because you've gone there. And so there's always that both andness. You remember last time I pointed out the passage that spoke of Jesus in verse 37, saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones 
those who are sent to it. I mean, that's a condemning phrase, but the heart behind it, listen, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. These woe judgments are coming strong. They're going to come very, with great concision. They're, they're like direct hits on the Pharisees and their hearts that are hardening. But at the same time, there's a compassion of love behind every phrase given. In Isaiah 5, Isaiah, for instance, is giving his woe judgments one after the other to Israel before they would go into Babylonian captivity. And then the spotlight is turned on him as he enters into the temple, sees the Lord, and it undresses him in his sinfulness. And he says, not woe on you, but woe on me. I'm undone. And that's the Christian life. Habakkuk 2, 6 through 12, again, the series of woes are given. Here now you have Jesus, as A.T. Robertson put it, giving the rolling thunder of Christ's wrath. And Barclay said, this is anger of the heart of love, broken by the stubborn blindness of men, an air of savage denunciation mixed with an air of poignant tragedy. It's a woe. It's compassion and warning. It's condemnation all mixed together. And here are, if you're taking notes, seven provocations of Christ's indignation. Seven provocations of Christ's indignation. You say, is that okay for Christ to be indignant or angry? Well, liberal denominations have cast Christ forever as he's the God of mercy, he's the God of um, justice, he's the God of love. And the God of the Old Testament is the harsh version of God. This is the God of the New Testament where everything gets, you know, polite, nice, and wonderful. Well, Jesus is all of these things. He's merciful. He's kind. He's loving. He's gracious, perfect, innocent. And then he's also filled with wrath and indignation at the evil that is going against God's holiness. He called out the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit as a prophet of God, as God, very God himself, standing for his own righteousness here. And it's wrong to see Jesus in a, in a bad light here. This is not Jesus having a bad day. This is Jesus fulfilling his mission, extending mercy and extending grace and extending truth in a hard way that, that will be hard-hitting. It takes hard preaching to soften hard hearts. Here he's doing both. He's preaching in a way that the word is hardening people and it's also drawing people. Well, under these seven provocations, here's the first one. It's a woe to the pra pragmatists. Woe to the pragmatists. You go, well, what? what? Pragmatics? Like he's upset at that? Well, let's see how this plays out. Look at verse 13 through 15. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte and when he becomes a proselyte you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves let's stop there there are in the New Testament, 18 references to someone as a hypocrite. 18 hypocrite words. 
in the New Testament. Well, seven of them are in this chapter. Jesus is calling out hypocrisy. He's also using the word woe seven times, and he uses the word blind, I counted four times. He is coming after play actors, people who are dressing up in their religious fakery, offering a religion in the name of God that sends you to hell. Listen to what I just said. People are offering a religion in the name of God that sends you to hell. That's what Jesus is mad at. Pragmatic religion. Um, Showtime religion, which draws people into churches. We've seen the trend over and over, over, you know, the last 50 years uh, where it, you know, let's have lights, camera, action, draw people in, sign them up, call them good. And as long as you are a good consumer, who's a good giver and a good attender, then you're fine. Live however you want to outside of the walls of the church house. But when you're here, you're good and it gives you sanction. It gives you identity and, and you'll be just fine. Well, that's a kind of religion that Jesus says, woe, or pronounces a curse upon. Why? Because my sub point here, woe to the pragmatists, they lock the door for heaven. They lock the door. It's like if you've ever had this happen where you had your, especially if you have your car running, it's cold outside, you rush out, you got to grab the groceries or something and you slam the door and you look back. I mean, nowadays, modern cars don't do this, but you lock yourself out of the car and you're locked out. Well, that's the idea that a leader who is a blind guide hypocrite is locking the door of heaven and you've locked yourself and everybody else outside of heaven. The car keys are inside. You can't get in. No matter how much you want to get in, you're locked out. Pragmatism is the art of being a getter dunner. You just want to get it done. There's nothing wrong with being practical. There's nothing wrong with being motivated. There's nothing wrong with figuring out a way where... You know, the end justifies the means. I mean, you, you, you just want to get it done no matter what. But when you're talking in terms of the gospel, that is all wrong. Because gospel is by grace. Gospel is by through faith. It's by believing, not doing. It's not something that you do, earn, fix for yourself. Um, you don't fix yourself. You, you can't, it's not something that you can just make yourself right with God. This is something where you're falling upon the mercy of God and you're saying, God, be merciful to me, to me a sinner. It's an acknowledgement of sin and a need for grace. And God gives you that. And that's saving gospel truth. Well, the Pharisees had perverted all of this in their hypocrisy and they were staging themselves as delivered, staging themselves, dressing themselves as these law keepers, tradition keepers. They were like artists in this and people would follow them and they would say, if you're good, then I'm good. I can be at least as good as you to get me in. Well, God is sovereign over salvation. God is not a pragmatist. God is not constrained by deadlines. This is a contrary religion. It was contrary to God's nature. This is the pretenders, as one person put it, people who wear the mask to cover their true feelings and external show while the thoughts and feelings are different. It's a religion of duplicity. The, the, the Pharisees' religion is hypocrite-making religion. It's a hypocrisy factory. 
And this is something we see in the church. We see it in cult groups, but you'll even see it in church groups where people, they just say, okay, I'm just going to go through the motions and do the things I need to do to feel right with God, but you're really not. And what Christ is particularly indignant over is not just the hypocrite who's lost himself, but he's the disciple maker. The disciple making hypocrite is what Jesus is in abject disgust with. He's saying, woe to you. You're someone who should have the millstone tied around your neck because as Matthew 18, 6 says, you're causing little ones to stumble. You should be killed for that. Verse 13, he shows that the ones responsible are in sin and the student who's following this are equally in sin. The verse 14 is left out of the English Standard Version, probably your version as well. It's a, um, it was a later edition for later manuscripts, but it was a copy made from what's in Mark. In Mark's gospel, um, it accounts for how Pharisees were abusing widows and, and they were losing their life savings. And I preached that when I went through Mark, but that's left out of Matthew's account. It goes to verse 15, which is um, they force conversions. So they lock people out of heaven. Then they force conversions. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. Stop there. Is that a bad thing? I mean, R.C. Sproul was kind of funny with this. If you remember him as a theologian, he said, you know, it's, that's the one area the Pharisees outdid us. You know, they would, they'd go across land and sea just for one convert. They'd do it, you know, and, and make, it, make it happen. He said he would have never traveled on a speaking trip just for, to speak to one person, you know. But I understand that sentiment. It's catchy and interesting. But Jesus is condemning this action. I mean, people were made real proselytes into Judaism. They would be converted. They'd be circumcised. They'd be kind of cleaned up and put into um, Judaism. You see reference to this at the sermon at Pentecost where Peter's preaching. There were Jews there. There were proselytes there. Acts 6, there were one of the deacons that was the early deacon in the church was a proselyte of Antioch. Acts 13, there were converts in um, the early missions, converts to Jerusalem. But this kind of convert is a convert to a false religion this is like the mormon going door to door saying hey you you need to also read the extra testament you know the according to the latter-day saints this is joseph smith's testimony and it's something that's uninspired that's proclaiming that christ is a created being so we know it's antichrist we know it's wrong the jw's do the same thing the jehovah's witnesses they will they will knock on your door Christian scientists will call you up on the phone. They'll try to get you to take a personality test. You need to say, no, thank you. Or say, you know, we're not going to take that call. I mean, it's, it's, it's all fun and games, but they're alluring and they will draw people in. And I've told you stories about how people will ingratiate themselves to you and say, you know, our religions are a little bit different, but we have the same Jesus. We've got the same atonement. We've got the same Bible to some degree. And it, it sort of like mesmerizes people in. All of that is satanic and wrong. And I want to submit to you that that version of proselytizing or, or winning people is a wrong-spirited, um, demonic-driven version of trying to draw people into what's false. You're, you're, it's people being wooed into hypocrisy. 
Oh, all I have to do is show up. All I have to do is give this. All I have to do is read that. Then I'm good. (sighs) Finally, my conscience can be clear. That's the wrong way to have a conscience cleared. Really, it's tying up heavy burdens, as we learned last week, on a conscience. It's heavy loads and heavy burdens to keep trying to keep yourself right with God. And it's usually driven by money. It's a money scam where people are saying, just keep giving to this religion and we'll keep telling you you're right with God. That's what Jesus hates. This kind of hypocrite is someone who's, who will spare no expense just to get one in because it's all being done in the flesh. It's all being done out of your own effort, your own pragmatism. It's forcing conversions. You say, well, how is this good news? Well, it's good news because it really needs to take the pressure off of us in our evangelism. You say, don't we need pressure to evangelize? I don't want to evangelize. It's scary to evangelize. It's terrifying to get to a conversation with someone about Christ. Well, what's terrifying about evangelism? What's terrifying about evangelism isn't just the fact that we can be lazy not to speak. I think primarily the reason we don't speak up in evangelism is we've not studied the Bible first before we start talking about the Bible. We've not learned about God first before we start talking about God. We've not studied and done a Bible study on what is the gospel, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. How can I explain that? If you study the Bible then it will naturally come out in providential opportunities as you engage people in your life. People will ask you questions about why your life has changed. People will, things will come up where, what do you believe? This is what I believe. And you can begin to talk about Christ and it will flow out of you naturally. One of the, um, I don't think about it enough, but I have some with my kids doing secular work where they will find themselves in conversations um, about Jesus. And I think, man, that's the one thing I miss about always being in this place all the time is everybody already says they know Jesus. And I, by and large, everybody does know Jesus who comes into our building all day. But when I worked secular jobs, there were times all the time when I would talk about Jesus. And I'm a verbal guy. I'm a verbal processor. But I'm also someone who likes to read doctrine and read the Bible. And so when I do that and I'm talking to people, I want to talk about what I know about. So it just kind of comes out. God is sovereign over salvation. He's the one that saves people. He's the one that opens and closes hearts. But he's also the one by divine design that sets up providential encounters for you to talk to people like the Philippian eunuch or the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, I should say. Um, they, you know, they, they had this providential encounter where, he's, where the Ethiopian eunuch was reading Isaiah about the Lord and who is this that is the lamb who is slain from Isaiah 53. And then, you know, Philip is running alongside the chariot and talking about it or Paul talking to Lydia who was a seller of purple and explaining things and the Lord changed her heart as he's explaining scripture or the Philippian jailer where you're in jail, you know, Paul and Silas, I think, and they're they're, they're being beaten for the gospel and, and the doors fling open and, and they stay in the jail cell and the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? I mean, these are just providential encounters. Peter talking to Cornelius. You say, but, but what's the scheme behind that? What's the strategy? What's the door to door? Well, I, I don't know how you predict going to jail or how you predict earthquakes or how you predict providential encounters or riverside conversations or whatever. How do you, why do you want to, don't think about those things. Just live your life, 
Live in the capacity that the Lord has called you to live in. Be yourself. Be at the aptitude level that you're at. I don't view myself as a very smart person. I just try really hard. I am a try hard person. But, but I, you know, I just, I'm myself. And the Lord has used it over and over again to talk to people. And sometimes you see the fruit of that. Oftentimes you don't. Sometimes you hear about it later on. Sometimes you don't. And, and God is operating through his Holy Spirit by divine appointments for you to have conversations. And isn't it amazing that he would use us? Like, just look in the mirror. Think about you for a second. That's incredible. We all have a you problem, right? And the Lord uses us anyway. And people come to faith in Christ. Going in terms of a militant I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to force this conversion. I'm going to shove this you know, down somebody's throat. I'm going to make it practical. I'm going to sweeten the deal. I'm going to seal the deal. That kind of thing creates a bad disciple. And look what the kind of disciple it makes. It says, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. It almost sounds slang-like in the Bible. I mean, this is someone who is doubly devilish, doubly bad. If you've ever known people who are hero worshipers, even good here, like, oh, I love R.C. Spur, I love John Piper, I love John MacArthur, I love these people. Uh, you know, they'll gain their convictions, but then they'll like double down sometimes in their own fleshly way and they become like a sycophant, you know, and, and they, 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 they're not whole or natural, but at least they're following somebody that's good. Well, imagine someone following a Pharisee, like, oh, you know, they, they're law keepers and they really are going for it and they're keeping everything, every box is checked, everything is followed. And then these people are doubly that, you know, and just fanatics. And Jesus does not like that at all. He doesn't like that at all. He wants us to be people who operate by sovereign grace, who win people to Jesus with the gospel, where hearts are softened, not hardened, where pride is crushed, not built up. I mean, a proselyte of a Pharisee is a proud, arrogant person who's filled with hubris and not filled with grace. I like J.C. Ryle, what he said. He said, let us understand that the ruin of those who are lost is not because Christ was not willing to save them, nor yet because they wanted to be saved, but could not, could not, but because that man's salvation is holy of God and that man's ruin is holy of himself. So we leave the results to God. All right, here's the second, my second theme. It's the second um, thing that the Lord is indignant over. It's, it's a woe to the blind. So you have the pragmatist who's, who's kind of forcing religion down people's faces, but then you have this cause for pragmatism here beginning in verse 16. It's the blindness it's a blindness. I mentioned before that the word blind is, you know, a repeat word at least four times here in this section, but blind and blind guides. I mean, it's the blind leading the blind. It's one thing to be self-deluded, self-deceived and blind, but it's another thing to be a blind leader leading people into a pit. Let me read our section, verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides. Who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. 
you blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Blindness. The first aspect of blindness is you lie to yourself. You're blind by self-deception. Blind by lying to yourself. Jesus uses the word blind. Again, harking back to Matthew 15, 14. Let them alone. They're blind guides. If, a blind, if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. You're both going down. Jesus wants to detach these loyalties. Don't be a blind person following a blind person. I mean, and let me just say this to you, because I know there's a lot of we have young people, we have single people. Bad company corrupts good morals. This goes for all of you, no matter what situation you're in. Detach yourself from people who are blind, self-deceived, who are out of it, who don't know God. I mean, you can love people, you can minister to people, but don't, don't, don't nourish, don't be nourished by people like that. They lead others astray. Jesus says this is dangerous. It's dangerous when you lie to yourself. You're a hypocrite who's a play actor and you don't even know you're play acting. You see, hypocrites was for acting in the Greek language. It is a word for that. It means play actor. You're, you're play acting, but you, and you've seen this where people portray a character in a movie and then they, their personality begins to actually take on that character. That's like who they are. That's what this is like. It's the deepest version of hypocrisy is self-deception. It's a person who's like a false teacher who's seared in his conscience, 1 Timothy 4, 2. 2 Timothy 3, 13, they go from bad to worse. They're deceiving and being deceived. The heart's deceitful, desperately wicked. They're, not, they're only hearers of the word, but they're not doers because they are deceiving themselves. It's a self-righteous complex where you go, I'm safe. I'm good because of all that I do. And I'm going to teach you how to be good. That's what this is. This is a manual on pragmatic Phariseeism. Hey, swear by this, but not by that. If you swear by this, then you're good. But if you swear by that, you're not good in the temple. Uh, just put your hand on home base. This is this inanimate object in the temple will keep me safe with God. Not that, but this. That's what Jesus is deconstructing here. He's using a um, kind of a technique that is uh, to show that something is absurd by talking it through. The more that he talks through the logic, it becomes more and more absurd. He was basically calling out that they were in violation of the third commandment. You're taking the Lord's name in vain. You're saying you're right with God by swearing by gold in the temple, but not by the temple itself. You don't want all of God. You don't want the God of the temple. You just want What's sacred here? So I'm touching this and this is keeping me right. Or the sacrifice. The sacrifice on the altar is good. But then Jesus is going, well, what about the altar? You can't have just part of God. You got to have all of God. Let your yes be all yes and your no be all no. Not a little bit of this and a little bit of that and I'm right with God. Matthew 5.33, listen to the parallel rebuke. 5.33, this is from the Sermon on the Mount. Again, you've heard that it was said... To those of old, you shall not swear falsely. Don't swear falsely. 
but perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Don't be someone who says one thing and then does another. Oh, I'll do it, and then you don't do it. That's what Jesus is rebuking. He's not saying you can't make a promise. He's just saying don't swear falsely. Don't be a faker. Don't try to gimmick your way into heaven. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is, a foot, it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. So people were saying, I promise according to heaven, I promise according to Jerusalem, I promise according to this um, throne, I promise I'm making these oaths. Well, that's blasphemy. That's what has no teeth whatsoever. Listen to this, and do not take an oath by your head, by your own health, for you cannot make one hair white or black. You know, God strike me dead or, I'll, you know, God strike me with sickness if I don't do that. Do any of those oaths, by the way, have any teeth whatsoever? You've heard it, you know, the princess bride, you know, I, I swear on, you know, my mother's grave, you know, that kind of thing. That, that, that means nothing. I mean, it's solemn. It's a, it's a gravity moment. But really, whoever is making a promise on an inanimate object or a grave or a stone or anything at all, it means nothing because only God really knows our heart and he's the only one who can really, truly hold us accountable to anything. And so Jesus is saying, I don't, I hate this. I don't like it and I, I'm disgusted by this. It's empty. It's lying and swearing falsely. Psalm 56, 12, I must perform my vows to you. It's not wrong to make a vow, but it's, it's wrong to make a vow that you don't plan to keep. It's wrong to make a commitment that's half-hearted. In the waters of baptism, it's a confession to the Lord. I'm committing my life to the Lord because I'm saved. In membership, you say, I'm coming under the leadership of the church. In, I am a member of this body. I'm committed to the body of Christ here. It's a full commitment before God and everyone else. That is what God honors, not where we lie to ourselves. You need a full yes or full no. The other attribute of blindness here is lying directly to God, lying directly to God. And that, that gets us into this unpacking of these false commitments. It's swearing by temple items, some as if more binding than others. William Barclay said, it's the science of evasion. Jesus is presenting a caricature of Jewish legalistic methods. You have brought evasion to such a fine art that it's possible to regard an oath by the temple as not binding. Jesus is using what's called reductio ad absurdum. It's just basically showing how the logic is more and more absurd the more you talk about it. We create loopholes for ourselves, don't we? Like, oh, I was bad, so I'm going to make up for that by being a little bit extra good. You know, I was mean, so I'm going to be a little bit extra nice now before God. God will like me more because of how I've gotten a new haircut or, you know, or gone to church a few more times. I'm in God's favor now. God is disgusted by that because that's a lie to yourself, and it's a lie in front of God. And God wants us just to be open and bare. You say, well, what, what does that look like? What does it look like? Ultimately, it's understanding that God is the only one who truly can keep you accountable. 
That's what it looks like. Not swearing by temple objects, not playing games with God, not looking for loopholes. If you look at verse 19, you blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? We're talking about true worship, not some sort of external idea of swearing by an altar or a gift. So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. If you're going to make a promise, you're not making these half promises. You're making a promise open and bare before God. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. Your commitment, even if you think it was half-hearted, is made before God, the God of the temple. Whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. You might think that you're getting away with this loophole where you can half-promise But your half promise is in light of the accountability of a whole God. I just want you to see that. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. So what do you do with yourself? How do you hold yourself to this standard? Well, the issue is through humility, we come to God and we say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm imperfect. I know you're the only way that I can be right through Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross. I mean, Paul did it in Romans 7. The things I do, I don't want to do. The things I don't want to do, I do. A wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's his conclusion at the end of Romans 7. It wasn't resolved in himself. He's just open and laid bare before the Lord. And then in Romans 8, 1, it says, Now there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I am under a no condemnation status. It doesn't give me a pass for for sinning. Romans 7, I'm sinning and I don't want to. And I need to grow through the grace of God in that. But at the same time, I rest in the accountability of heaven that one day God will let me in nevertheless because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So how does this play out practically? Because we're all going to be accountable one day before the Lord as we stand before him. How do we really grow in accountability if we can't play games with God? That's that's the question. We can't find a loophole out from under the accountability of God where Romans 14.10 will appear before the judgment seat. Romans 3.13, every work will become manifest. 2 Corinthians 5.10, at the judgment seat, everyone will receive what is due And what has been done in the body, whether good or evil, there will be accountability. There's present day accountability. How do we work this out in our Christian life? We can't play games. We can't be a pragmatist. We can't be a fake hypocrite trying to force our way into righteousness. We can't be blind and just sort of like lie about what's going on. We all have sinful hearts. So what do we do with this? Who holds you accountable, really? Let me ask that question. Does your spouse? Does your best friend? Does your pastor? Do you hold yourself accountable? You know who holds you accountable as a Christian? God. He's the only one that genuinely knows all of what's going on inside of each one of us. He knows every thought, deed, action, and attitude. In A passage in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul talks about how no one knows the depth of God except the Holy Spirit. And that's a parallel to our own accountability. The Holy Spirit knows us at the deepest core level. We'll lie to ourselves, we'll tell ourselves we're okay to make ourselves feel better, but we really 
know in the depth of our being that God knows everything that's going on in the quietness of our own headspace. He knows our heart. So what do we do with that? You humbly receive it. Because the worst news is the best news. God knows you and he knows the depth of your sin. But guess what? He accepts you anyway through Christ. Isn't that amazing? He knows exactly how bad we really are. And he loves us anyway. If you've ever been in a situation where you had to confess sin to somebody and say, you know, I blew it. You thought I was this bad, but I was really this bad. And they go, you know what? By you telling me that, this happened this week with somebody outside of our you know, state and all of that. Someone just told me their sin. They told me what was going on in their own life, in their own heart. And so, some, something they had done uh, repeatedly. And they felt bad about it. And they were confessing it. And they were going to people to talk about it. And as he told me this, my heart just melted. And I just loved this person so much more because he would trust me to tell me the sin he was working through. Do you realize that God does that with you on some sort of exponentially, like, infinite level that we can't even understand? God loves you. He made you. He remade you. And he loves you and is committed to you, holding all of your sin in his mind at the same time. He's shielded from it by the covering of the blood of Christ, but he knows everything about you. And he loves you and accepts you. It's amazing to be humbled by the accountability of God and to rejoice at the same time in that accountability because he loves you so much and is growing you through whatever you're going through. This is Paul's witness, and I just want to walk through a couple of verses. Philippians 1.8, this is what he said. He would not only know that God was who was the one holding him accountable, he would say, for God is my witness. That's the phrase he used over and over again. God is my witness. He knows my heart, how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Romans 1, 9 through 10. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit, uh, with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in prayers. 1 Thessalonians 2.5, for we never came with words of flattery. We didn't flatter. We didn't come with a pretext of greed. God is witness. He's the one. 1 Thessalonians 2.10, you are witnesses and God also. He talked about the accountability of people, but he also said, God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you as believers. This was the story all the way back from the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel 12, 5, it was said, he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day. 1 Samuel 16, 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or his height or his stature. This is talking about David. Because I have rejected him, for the Lord sees not as man sees. He's rejecting Saul and he's affirming David. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the what? The heart. For Samuel 20, 12, this is where Jonathan made his commitment to David that he would protect him from his father, Saul, who was after him. He said, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. Let God be the witness in my commitment, for I have sounded out my father. About this time tomorrow, or on the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? God is witness. How do you run within your Christian life? 
Run within the accountability of God. Don't run from it. Don't hide it. Don't be pragmatic about your religion. Oh, if I do this, I'll be fine. If I pray this way, then I'll be fine. If I touch that sacred object, I'll be fine. Whatever it is for you, don't do it. Just open your heart before the Lord and say, look, I know I'm as bad as it can be. And by grace, I live my life. You are my witness of all of this. And I want to walk in the boldness of that accountability. Don't run from that accountability. Embrace it. Love it. Matthew 5, 37. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Nothing more than this comes from, anything more than this comes from evil. A full yes or a full no. Jesus is giving judgment against anything less. 1 John 1, 8 through 10. This is one of the most practical New Testament sections on this that I could give you. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Verse eight, if we say we have no sin, guess what? You're lying to yourself. There's no truth. You're just self-deceived. Verse 10, if we say we've not sinned, we make him, we make God a liar and his word is not us. We're saying, I'm not a sinner. I'm not, I don't have a problem. And guess what? God says I'm a sinner, but he doesn't really know what he's talking about. That's what first John says not to do. Right in between those two verses is verse nine. It's one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word confess is the word hamalageo. It means to say the same thing that God already knows to be true about our own lives. Hama means same. Lageo means speak. We're saying stuff that God already knows to be true. You're not doing that to become a Christian. You, you will initially, if you're not a Christian, you'll confess your sin. But once you're a Christian, there's an ongoing relationship with the Lord where you're just open with his accountability, where you talk through your heart out loud to him, and he is creating this relationship that's growing and strengthening where you're growing in Christ's likeness as you go. Don't fall prey to what Ananias and Sapphira did. I don't know if they went to heaven or hell, but Acts 5, 1 through 11, remember the story. They both independently of each other brought an offering and said that they were giving all that they had when they were really giving part of what they had. The sin that they committed was not that they were giving part and not all, but they were lying about how much they were giving or withholding. And in both cases, they were condemned where they stood. And the apostle said, You've not just lied to man, but you've lied to God, the Holy Spirit. Don't do that. Don't lie to yourself. Love the Lord. Face up to your sin. And bask in the grace of God. As one person said, God hears every word we speak and God sees every intention of our hearts. In view of that fine art of evasion, is one in which the Christian should be foreign. The technique of evasion may suit the sharp practice of the world, but never the open honesty of the Christian mind. Let's be honest. Let's be upright by the grace of God.